Hi there. This is Jeff Otis, Senior Wealth Consultant and Partner at Evergreen GovCal, and you're listening to Coffee with Evergreen on the Evergreen Exchange. I hope you enjoy this 20-minute conversation between myself and Louis Gov of GovCal Research. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. Jeff Otis is an employee and partner of Evergreen GovCal. All views and opinions expressed by Jeff and any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. All right, Louis, I appreciate you being here with us. Your first coffee with Evergreen and welcome. Thanks a bunch. Uh, delighted to be here. Great to see you, Jeff. We're going to get you started with uh, with stimulus. So question number one, what should we, we be aware of stimulus? What are the impacts on uh, on markets as you see it? Well, look, you know, the first the first question I always ask myself when when I see big increases in government spending is where is that money going to? You know, there's Nothing wrong per se with government spending money. Uh, if you look at the United States in the 1950s, massive government spending uh, funded the interstate highway system, which boosted US productivity for the following 30 years. Uh, in the 1930s, the building of the TVA, the Hoover Dam, uh, basically allowed electrification of the big parts of the United States that until then uh, were in essence backwaters and allowed industrial booms in the Southeast and, and whatnot. The big question for me today is a fairly simple one. If I look at uh, 2020, the increase in debt per living American was 13,000 US dollars. The increase in debt per working American was 39,000 US dollars. So every working American basically now has to assume just for 2020, 39,000 increase in debt. And when you project yourself to, to 2021, you're looking at roughly the same amount, which means that by the end of 2021, the amount of government debt per working citizen in the United States will be the highest of any country in the world and through history. Just to be very clear, this increase that we've seen in debt in just one year, this past year, is also the highest increase in debt per person in any country through history. Um, So we're breaking all sorts of records here. And so the big question is, okay, great. We're adding tons of debt on the back of the American worker uh, who will have to repay that debt somehow, some way in the future. What productive investment is that debt going to? And so, you know, I'll I'll return your question to you, Jeff. You know, I went to a Jesuit school when I grew up, so I'm uh, used to answering questions with another question. I see the increase in debt. What uh, What are the investments being made with that increase in debt? Um, I struggle. I, I don't see a new Hoover Dam. I don't see a new interstate highway system. I think the last time the U.S. opened up a new air, a new airport was 1992 in Denver. It's been 30 years since the U.S. has opened a new airport. So you've piled on debt. And where is the productivity increase going to come from to pay for this debt? If it doesn't, that means that in essence, this increase in debt is doing nothing but funding consumption. That's it. It's a pure funding of transfer payments. And then I come to uh, what Jacques Rueff, who's my favorite economist, uh, Jacques Rueff used to say, inflation comes from funding expenditures that give no return with money that does not exist. And therefore, the question I pose to you is, is this not exactly what we're seeing in the United States today? Seems like it. I think so. Some of that money's ending up in Robinhood accounts, isn't it? I mean, isn't that part of what we're seeing right now? 
For sure it is. For sure it is. Uh, and there, I think that's that's uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, it is undeniably uh, fueling the equity markets today. And maybe you could say, you know, as this money makes its way into equity markets, maybe it could fuel productive investments from companies. Maybe it's not, uh, in essence, what we are seeing today is not the government taking that money and building productive investments, i.e. interstate highway system, Hoover Dam, or whatever else. But the, the government is giving that money to people who then turn around and give it to companies who can then make productive investments with that capital. That would be the, the hopeful uh, take on it. Uh, the less hopeful take on this would be uh, we're fueling uh, a bubble in a lot of silly assets, whether Bitcoin, whether GameStop, uh, and so forth. And we're also encouraging companies to to embrace financial engineering to degrees that, that we never have before with excess leverage on balance sheets and, and whatever else. You know, maybe maybe we will see massive productivity gains from, from uh, all this money flowing into equity markets. Right now, it doesn't feel like that to me, though. Yeah, I'm with you on that. You mentioned this earlier, um, and I want to go back to it. Let's talk about inflation. This is a question that I'm now hearing more and more from clients, not just do you think inflation is likely, but what are the implications of inflation? How do you protect against in, uh, inflation if that is a real threat ahead? So just give us some of your thoughts on what what is the risk of inflation ahead, and if it is a significant risk, how do you protect against it? Well, let me start off with a, a simple number. Um, you know, I, I talked about the massive increase in debt in the United States. Uh, how is this debt funded? Well, it's being funded by money printing. What is the growth of uh, M1 today in the United States? M1 in the United States right now is growing by 72% year on year. This is simply unprecedented in the history of the United States. Never have money aggregates in the United States grown at the pace at which they are growing today. Um, in fact, never, have, never since World War II has money grown by 72% in any Western democracy. You know, even Japan, which did print aggressively in the early 2000s, capped out the growth of its money supply at 30%. Um, so the growth of money in the United States today is simply unprecedented, just like the growth of debt. Um, and so, yes, you look at this growth in money supply, and I think investors uh, are right to be, to be concerned about inflation. I would go one step further on inflation. You know, I think you've had a lot of deflationary forces uh, in, in the past couple decades. Obviously, globalization was one of them. The rise of technology was, was another. Within the CPI indices, um, you had, of course, the, in the past 10 years, the drop in commodity prices, most notably energy, uh, that helped keep inflation down. That is now over. The drop in food prices, which are very often correlated to energy, because so much of producing food, or for that matter, most commodities, is linked to energy. That now seems to be over. Um, another big drag on inflation uh, in recent years was uh, the rent equivalents. Because mortgage rates kept falling, this meant that you know supposedly it was cheaper and cheaper to house yourself. Now, you know that doesn't feel like most people's experiences in, in at least the big cities where real estate become became unaffordable. But on paper, supposedly because the mortgage payments were you know lower, it's meant that real estate. Uh, was cheaper. Um, right. How much more can mortgage rates fall? So, you know, when you look at inflation today, where is the deflation going to come from in a world where increasingly we're deglobalizing, in a world where technology now uh, has really become monopolistic and is increasingly not about reducing prices, but about cashing in their monopoly rents? You see this with Apple, you see this uh, with Google, you see this with Facebook, and so on. 
I don't know where the deflation comes from in the future, to, to be honest. So, uh, and I can see a lot of inflation in the pipeline. I see it in higher energy prices, higher food prices. So yes, and of course I see it in the just the insane growth in monetary aggregates. So yes, inflation is a real risk, and it's a risk that uh, investors should uh, should build their portfolios around. And here, this is where it becomes very, very challenging. Now, I tend I tend to believe that a portfolio uh, is a little bit like a football team. Um, you know, if you take your football team, everybody has a specific job on the team, right? You have your offensive lineman, you have your running back, you have your quarterback. You don't expect your offensive lineman to be able to pass the ball very far. Uh, nor do you expect your offensive lineman to be able to run a 100-meter sprint. But you expect your cornerback and your, your, your wide receivers to be the fastest guys on the team. So everybody's got specific jobs. Now, right. with that in mind, your typical portfolio for years you know, was a 60% equity, 40% bond portfolio, or thereabouts. And the first job of the bonds was, in essence, to be your offensive line. The, the bonds were there to protect your asset, and your asset was the quarterback, and that was your equities, uh, or your running back. Those were the guys that would score the points, and the bonds were there in case things got bad. They were there as the protection in the portfolio. Now, the big challenge I think we all confront today is that bonds, when they were yielding 2% real, 1.5% real, were very adequate offensive linemen. Today, Bonds have gone for the summer and they've gone on a diet and they've come back and now you've got a, a bunch of offensive linemen that weigh 140 pounds. Now, who needs a 140 pound offensive lineman? This is the reality of the minus one and a half percent real treasury. Treasuries can no longer do the job that you pay them to do in the portfolio, that you expect them to do in the portfolio. Um, this is all the more true if we are now entering into an inflationary environment. Right. So this is the biggest challenge for any investor today is, okay, we all know where the growth is. We can buy the growth stocks. Everything is great. But, you know, we all know Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback. We all know basically tech stocks are the Tom Brady of your portfolio. How do you build the offensive line to protect your tech stocks? This is the real challenge for, for any investor today. Uh, and I think the reality uh, to the answer to that question is U.S. Treasuries no longer do it. And so you have to either look abroad and buy foreign bonds, uh, option one, which in a world of high inflation in the U.S. will work if only because the U.S. dollar uh, will be structurally weak. So that's option one. Option two, you know that in inflationary period, gold can sometimes cushion uh, volatility in portfolios. So precious metals is another option um, as you build your offensive line. And I would say third would be assets that still deliver income. In this world, it's hard to find income. One of the few places you can find income is energy because it's uh, it's been starved of, of income. So energy could be today your anti-fragile asset, partly because in an inflationary world, energy actually typically does pretty well. And so I would say I would build my offensive line around these three key blocks. Foreign government bonds, most notably in Asia, precious metals, and energy. Income, energy income related stuff. Can I ask a follow up on that? Uh, in Asia, are there specific countries that you like for bond allocation or more of a mixed bag or how would you play that? So look, um, you know, I've been a big proponent of Chinese government bonds for a long time, probably because you know, the renminbi is a structurally strong currency. Uh, few people realize this, but 
The renminbi is now the world's best performing currency on a 12-month basis, on a 36-month basis, on a five-year basis, on a 10-year basis. Take any kind of time frame, and, and the renminbi is, is the strongest currency. Uh, and it's very strong with a very low volatility. Why? Because for geopolitical reasons, China basically needs to de-dollarize trade in Asia. And it can only convince other Asian countries to abandon the US dollar in favor of the renminbi if the renminbi is a structurally strong currency. So China has been very transparent about this. They want the renminbi to become Asia's Deutschmark. Uh, just like the Deutschmark became the reference currency in Europe in the 1970s and 80s, China is aiming to do this for um, for Asia. And so, um, so I like the renminbi. Having said that, you know, I think there's there's other terrific opportunities. I think the uh, the Indonesian uh, government bond market offers uh, you know decently high yields in an undervalued currency, uh, and the same is true, uh, frankly, of the Indian rupee. And so, you know, you can build yourself a decently diversified portfolio of Asian government bonds that offers yields of four, four and a half, five percent. And here, I just want to make a, a key point: is that if you com compound Asian government bonds, so you build yourself an Asian government bond portfolio that yields four percent, let's say, and you compare that to U.S. Treasuries that yield one. As you compound this over 10 years, and you know that Einstein said that you know the most powerful force in the universe is the law of compounding. If you compound this over a decade, your Asian government bonds are going to outperform your U.S. bonds by more than a third. It's just simple compounding. So the only way you lose on this trade is if Asian currencies fall by more than a third against the U.S. dollar. Now, the only time Asian currencies have fallen by more than a third against the U.S. dollar was during the Asian crisis of 1997. Back then, most Asian countries were running current account deficits of 5, 6, 7% of GDP. Today, most of them are running current account surpluses. China's trade surplus alone is now 75 billion US dollars a month. Every month, there's 75 billion coming in. And that's before you go into capital flows and everything else. So you look at this and you think, okay, how can the, you know, the Asian currencies aren't going to fall by a third. If anything, they're going to rise by a third. You could also make the opposite argument that it's maybe more likely that Asian currencies will appreciate to the dollar. Ahead. For sure. Much more likely. Well, look, again, US M1 growth today is 72%, Chinese M1 growth 8%. Like one printing press can't print dollars fast enough, and China, meanwhile, is already tightening. You know, right. which which currency do you want to own? It's it's an absolute no-brainer. And so you have the force, the power of compounding on your side the power of money printing on your side, the power of trade balances on your side, they're all pointing in the same direction. Very few times in my career, usually in a career, you know, when you have to make a decision, it feels like a 60-40 bet, right? It's like, well, you know, I've got this on this side and that on that side, but I think this matters more. This time, everything is pointing in the same direction, uh, literally everything. So it's, uh, to me, it, it, is, it is such the no-brainer. Yeah, it, it, that was going to be my next question, but you already answered it. And, and, and it was going to be kind of what opportunities do you like ahead? But I think that covers it. I mean, I'm so tempted uh, now that we have you to keep asking questions. But for the sake of our listener, we try to keep these things to about 10 minutes. But before I let you go, I got at least one bonus question as we do. And I'm going to tee this one up for you. So do you have a favorite French rugby team? Well, yeah, um, you probably know that. So I, I own a, a club in France where we're currently – uh, in the second division in France. So rugby works a little bit like rug, uh, like soccer with relegation, promotion and relegation. We used to be a legendary club. Uh, we won European Cups and the French National Championship a number of times. 
we fell on hard times. I, I, I bought it as the club was about to go bankrupt. And uh, well, my dad and I bought it and we've been trying to redress it right now. We're, we're top, we're top of the, we're ranked third on the table um, in the second division. So there's a good chance we could go up this year. So uh, if you happen to be in France in early June, uh, this is when the playoffs will be. Uh, let me know uh, and we'll host you for uh, what should be very exciting playoff games. Well, so it, uh, for the listeners that are looking for a all, French, all the listeners, <laughs> for the listeners that are a French rugby uh, club to support, which one is it? Oh, sorry, I didn't even say the name. I mean, I'm a. Uh, it's uh, called the Biarritz Olympique. So it's in Biarritz, which is close. It's in the Basque Country, which is very close to the Spanish border on the Atlantic Ocean. And Biarritz, if you know Biarritz, you'd know it for one of two reasons: either because you're a rugby fan, or because uh, you're a surfer, because uh, Biarritz is also Europe's surf capital. I love it. There you go. Well, I appreciate, again, appreciate your time. Thanks for jumping on with this, and we'll do this again. Sounds great. Thanks, Jeff.